All right, let's pray. We'll begin. Lord, we come before you as we do each week, uh, recognizing that we need you. We need your help. We need your truth. Um, We need your power to change. We need you to illuminate our understanding so that we can see what needs to be seen. And we need you to uh, move our hearts so that we love what we should love, so that we fear what we should fear, so that we value what we should value. So, Lord, we're not under the, um, <clears throat> the false notion that we can sort of manufacture that on our own. We ask for your help. We ask you to be present and to do your work in us and through us for your glory. Amen. Amen. <clears throat> so we're going to continue our class on evangelism. And I was originally going to do uh, an introductory lesson last week, and that one lesson became two lessons. So let me recap real briefly what we covered last week, and then we'll jump into this week's lesson. So the the focus for last week's lesson was what is evangelism, and I even talked a little bit about why we would do, uh, why we would take you know 15 weeks or so to focus on this topic. Why would we choose evangelism? Uh, just to sort of refresh us, number one, evangelism is the natural overflow of the truth that we've been learning. So we've been studying each book of the Bible in sequence. Then we took uh, 50 weeks to cover biblical doctrine covering all those topics, and as we come to understand the truth, we understand Scripture and the teaching of Scripture, that's not supposed to just terminate in our own hearts. It's not just supposed to end here. That's supposed to overflow uh, with joy and overflow um, um, with conviction as we share those truths with other people. Um, We also want to tackle this issue of evangelism because I think there's a danger for us of becoming complacent. Um, and sort of losing momentum as a church. As a church grows, and as a church fills its building, there can be a sense of, okay, I guess we've really accomplished what we're supposed to be here to do, and that's just not the case. God has given us a mission that we are to be faithful in discharging, and we're to do that until we die or Jesus gets back. Uh, That's the finish line, and we're not there yet. So we want to keep our mission in front of us, Um, And then sort of flowing out of that, if we're going to do this faithfully, if we're going to faithfully and effectively share the gospel and do evangelism, um, then we need to be trained thoroughly and carefully. We don't just want to give an undefined task to the body and to say, go evangelize and make disciples. And people go, okay, I've heard those words, but how do we do that? So we want to thoroughly and carefully train and equip the body to do the work of the ministry. So that's sort of why we're tackling this topic. Last week, I aimed to define evangelism. What is evangelism? Uh, Number one, we looked at how evangelism is first and foremost proclamation. Evangelism is sharing a message. It's proclaiming good news, heralding the good news of what God has done through Christ to save sinners. If we don't tell people what God has done in sending his son to bring about the salvation of sinners, if we're not sharing that information, then we're not evangelizing. So it requires, first and foremost, proclamation of the evangel, of the gospel. So it's telling the good news to people who need to hear it. But secondly, evangelism also includes this aspect of persuasion. So we proclaim, we tell people what's true, but we're we're also inviting them to respond. One cannot hear the gospel message and remain neutral. If we share the gospel with people, it now puts a burden on them to respond one way or another. Whether they say no um, or whether they say yes, they must respond to the gospel message. The gospel is 
more than simply information. It's a message that demands a response. Jesus Christ demands a response. And so if we are going to faithfully share the gospel, then we must urge people to respond. We invite them to repent and believe. We do not coerce them. We do not manipulate them. But we do follow the example of the apostles in the early church of pleading with men to be reconciled to God. So that's an aspect of evangelism. And we'll go more in depth into that, what we mean by that in the, in the weeks to come. We'll talk about um, how, how do you call for response and how do we deal with objections and what's the proper biblical way to persuade without crossing very important boundaries that must not be crossed. The Holy Spirit is the one who really convinces a man's soul. We don't have the power to do that. So we share the truth and we invite them to respond, but there's certain lines we just cannot and must not cross. We'll talk about that and make that more clear, I hope, in in weeks to come. But we have to say up front that evangelism includes both of these aspects, proclamation of the truth, but also persuasion, um, inviting people to come, um, calling them to respond. That is part of what we must do in evangelism. So That's what evangelism is, sort of briefly defined. And this week, I'd like to tackle the question, why should we evangelize? Why should we proclaim this truth of what God has done through his son Jesus to save sinners? Why should we appeal to men and urge them to be reconciled to God? Why should we reason with them? Why should we invite them to come? Why should we warn them of the dangers of rejecting Christ? Why? What is the motive behind evangelism? Well, I think we could go about answering that a number of ways. We could sort of answer the question, why do evangelism, from a logical perspective. We could say, well, very simply, we're commanded to. It's a matter of obedience. God said it, and that settles it. And that is true. Um, We could look at it as a practical necessity, We could say, well, logically, people won't get saved if they don't hear the good news of the gospel. Faith comes by hearing, hearing by the word. How beautiful are the feet of those who share good news. Romans 10, yes. So we do share the gospel because we're commanded to. We do share the gospel because it's a practical necessity. Those things are obviously true. But I want to dig even deeper than that this morning. I'd like to look at what is the motive that would compel us to share this message. What is it that drives our efforts to do what the Apostle Paul said he did and and seek to, by any means possible, win souls to Christ. I know that we're supposed to. I know that it's practically necessary if people are going to hear the gospel and believe we have to say something. But the fact is, we struggle to do this, don't we? We know that we're commanded to. We know that it's logically necessary. But we don't want to always share the gospel, do we? And there's certain things that make it hard for us things that go on in our own heart, in our own mind, these barriers that we struggle to overcome, to do the thing that we know we're supposed to do, to do the thing that we know is necessary. Um, So I'd like to dig into really what's going on at the heart level, to dig into the heart of evangelism. Because at the end of the day, it boils down to one thing. And if you take notes at all today, if you're going to write down one thing, here's the one thing. We evangelize the lost out of love for God. Period. We evangelize the lost out of love for God. This is the singular reason that must be the first and highest motive of evangelism. Why must we evangelize? We evangelize if we love God. Or to put it another way, we evangelize because we love 
God. And from this foundational purpose, from this central motive, there's a host of other motivations that grow out of that, but they're all secondary to this first and primary reason. Why evangelize? We evangelize the lost out of love for God. What I hope to present to you this morning is a God-centered reason for evangelism in hopes that our efforts to reach the lost will be compelled by a God-centered heart. That's what we want to see in each and every one of you. That's what I want to see in my own heart, my own life. What I must pray for daily is a God-centered heart. And we have to get this right. We have to get this right. Because if evangelism is self-centered in any way, And think about how that's going to affect both our message and our methods. If my heart is self-centered, then both the message and the method are in danger of taking on the flavor of that self-centered heart. It starts becoming about me and about what people think of me and about how successful I am, which then undermines the integrity of the message itself. So a self-centered heart is dangerous to evangelism. And you could say, well, I'm not self-centered, but aren't we supposed to be others-centered? Isn't it love for others that compels us? Well, listen, if this love for man is larger than our love for God, if we become others-centered in a a wrong sense, in an unhealthy sense, if we become man-centered in our motives, similarly, the message and the methods will inevitably become man-centered which then destroys the message of the gospel and the goal of these things, which is to see people saved for the glory of God. It's only if we are radically God-centered in our deepest motives, then our message and our methods will remain God-centered. And therefore, we will be faithful, our evangelism will be sustainable, and I believe it will also be fruitful. We must have God and his glory at the center of our hopes and our aims and our motives. So where do we find this principle in Scripture? You say, J.D., you're being really dogmatic about this. Show me. Don't just tell me. Okay. Mark chapter 12, verse 30. I would argue that we see this all over the Scriptures, that our heart, our life, our ministry is all to be radically God-centered. But I think we see it most explicitly in Jesus' answer about which commandment in the Old Testament law was the greatest. Mark chapter 12, a man comes and asks him, and Jesus answers, You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind and with all your strength. The second is this. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. There is no other commandment greater than these. This emphasis on a God-centered heart, a God-centered motive, I believe flows not just from the general contours of the whole Bible. We can find this Old Testament, New Testament, in the prophets, in the Pentateuch, in the Psalms, in the Gospels, in the Epistles. We can find it everywhere, but we see it in black and white explicitly right here that Jesus says that loving God supremely is the primary responsibility we have as worshipers of God. This is our calling. This is to drive everything that we do, that we seek to love the Lord our God with everything we have. And that includes this heart of seeking to love God. That includes how we do evangelism. So I want to share with you this morning four ways in which evangelism expresses love for God. Okay, Four ways in which evangelism expresses love for God. Number one, evangelism expresses love for God's glory. 
when we share the gospel, when we tell people what God has done through his son Jesus to bring salvation to sinners, we're seeking to express our love for the glory of God. Because evangelism, done rightly, I believe, is first and foremost worship. When we tell people about what God has done, we're proclaiming the praise and the glory of God. Psalm 96.1 says, Oh, sing to the Lord a new song. Sing to the Lord all the earth. Sing to the Lord. Bless his name. Tell of his salvation from day to day. Declare his glory among the nations, his marvelous works among all the peoples. For great is the Lord and greatly to be praised. He is to be feared above all gods. Evangelism is worship. Evangelism is doing what Psalm 96 calls us to do, to tell of God's salvation from day to day, to declare his glory. It is glorious to think that God would create this world and then choose to save sinners that rebelled against him, that that he would send his son to humble himself and take on human flesh, to die on a cross and rise again, to triumph over death to free us from the bonds of sin. That is a glorious story. When we tell people what God has done in the gospel, we're declaring his marvelous works among all the peoples. And we're demonstrating that we love this story. We are rejoicing in the glory of God. Evangelism expresses love for God's glory. It's worship. It's worship. And what this does is, while we're pleading with people to respond and we are seeking to persuade them, At the end of the day, if someone doesn't believe, if they don't repent of sin, that doesn't mean that our evangelism is empty and meaningless and that there's no value in it. In that moment where we've declared his salvation and and talked about the glorious work of God, we've been worshiping and God is pleased by that. This kind of worship is the natural and right response to an experience of God's mercy and grace. If, if you and I have experienced this great salvation, if his mighty works have brought you and me the joy of salvation, then that joy should overflow as we tell others what God has done for us. I think we see this in Mark chapter 5. It tells us that as Jesus was getting into the boat, the man who had been possessed by demons, this man that lived among the tombs that Jesus had delivered from oppression, says this man who had been delivered begged him that he might be with him. So he wants to go with Jesus. But notice verse 19, he did not permit him, but said to him, go home to your friends and tell them how much the Lord has done for you and how he has had great mercy on you. And he went away and began to proclaim in the Decapolis, these Gentile cities, how much Jesus had done for him. And everyone marveled. This man who had been freed by the power of Jesus, this man who had received um, mercy from the Lord, Jesus said, go tell other people about it. And he did. He told everyone in his region. This story became well known. And they marveled because of it. This is the overflow of joy in what God had done for him. That's what we do when we evangelize. We're expressing love for God, love for his glory, proclaiming his glory to others. We see the same thing in John 4 with the, the woman at the well in Samaria. It says the woman left her water jar. She went away into town and said to the people, Come see a man who told me all that I ever did. Can this be the Christ? They went out of the town and were coming to him. Many Samaritans from that town believed in him because of the woman's testimony. He told me all that I ever did. Just like the, the man went to the Decapolis and told everyone about Jesus, this woman goes back. 
uh, in Samaria, she tells everybody about this Christ, this Messiah, and what he knew and what he said and who he was. And many people believed in him because of her testimony. See the same thing with the tax collector Levi in Luke chapter 5, verse 27. It says, After this, he went out and saw a tax collector named Levi, who we often refer to as Matthew. He was sitting at the tax booth, and Jesus said to him, Follow me. And notice what he does next after this. Leaving everything, he rose and followed him. But that's not all. And Levi made him a great feast in his house, and there was a large company of tax collectors and others reclining at table with them. So Levi, or Matthew, he, he leaves his work behind to follow Jesus, but he also gets all of his coworkers, all of his friends. I mean, this is a businessman with a large network, and he gets everybody together for dinner at his house so that they can meet Jesus. We see this pattern over and over again, that when people are impacted by the ministry of Christ, they start gathering others, telling others to hear about who Jesus is and what Jesus does. This is a pattern. Evangelism expresses love for God's glory as we tell other people about how great God is and all that he has done for us. So it's a form of worship. It's about worship. And our evangelism is aimed not just at offering worship to God, but think about it this way. We're also seeking to secure worship for God. So we show that we love God's glory by worshiping him, but we also show we love God's glory when we're trying to recruit other people to join us in worshiping him. Jesus, going again back to John 4, as he's talking to the woman at the well, the Samaritan woman, he says, The hour is coming and is now here when the true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and truth, for the Father is seeking such people to worship him. The Father is seeking worshipers. John Piper has rightly said that missions exists because worship doesn't. And missions is just evangelism in a different country where they don't speak your language, but it's evangelism, right? So evangelism or missions exists because worship doesn't. We're seeking to be part of what God is doing in gathering worshipers for his name. And in doing this, we show that we love the glory of God. We desire for God to be glorified. If we love God, we want him to be worshiped. We want him to be praised. And so we're seeking worshipers for God. So evangelism expresses love for God's glory by worshiping him, by seeking worshipers. We also show we love God's glory when we seek to advance his purposes. And evangelism does that. Evangelism is seeking to advance God's purposes in the world. Jesus taught his disciples to pray, your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. That's more than just words we're supposed to say or even a model of the kinds of things we should pray for. That's showing what should be the priority of our heart. We pray about the things that are important to us, don't we? I think you can really get to know someone well. If you spend time praying with them, you'll start seeing what it is that they care about, what it is that they're concerned for, what it is that grieves them, what it is that excites them, what it is that they think they need the most. You can learn a lot about somebody as you pray with them. And Jesus teaches us to pray for his kingdom to come and for his will to be done, for God's purposes to be advanced in the world. So when we share the gospel, when we do evangelism, we're expressing a love for God, a love for his glory by seeking to advance his purposes in the world. Later on in Matthew 6, Jesus encourages us with this word, seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and all these things will be added to you. The advance of God's kingdom, God's purposes, that's supposed to be our highest priority. 
So evangelism, if it's God-centered evangelism, it expresses a love for the glory of God, that we're worshiping him, we're calling others to worship him, and we're seeking to advance his purposes in the world. Because God's purpose in sending his son is to redeem a people for himself, for his own glory. And we want to be all about that, because that's what God is doing. So we're seeking to glorify God. Um, I'm going to skip over a few things here because of time. Because we could keep going on on just this one point. Um, It's hard. I think it's impossible to overstate the importance of the glory of God. If you read the scriptures, you see that everything God does is for his own glory. Everything we do is supposed to be for God's glory. So we evangelize for the glory of God because we love God with all our heart, soul, mind, and strength. And we desire to glorify him. So evangelism expresses love for God, expresses love for God's glory. Uh, But secondly, evangelism expresses love for God through obedience. Evangelism expresses love for God through obedience. Evangelism is a command given to us by Jesus. And, And you'll remember, we already mentioned this earlier, but we have to start with the glory of God. We have to start with love for God. And then secondly, underneath that, we find the right motive for obedience, Um, It is commanded, Matthew chapter 28, in the Great Commission. We see Jesus came and said to them, verse 18, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. And behold, I am with you to the end of the age. Um, There are many places where we find, I think, a a command in Scripture that moves us towards evangelism. This is probably the most famous and one of the most clear. Some people, however, will look at this and say, well, this is given to the apostles, not to us. I mean, Jesus is talking to the 12, and you're sort of lifting it out of context and saying, we all have to do this. Isn't this something that either the apostles do or leaders do? Why are you saying this is for all of us? Well, if I could just sort of dig into Matthew 28 for just a second. A couple features I'll draw your attention to. Um, I think we all love to look at the promise at the end of verse 20. Behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. And we love to say that that promise is for us, don't we? That he is with us, not just with the 12. Very rarely do people come to this text and say, no, Jesus is with the 12. God is with the 12, but he's not with us. Nobody's going to say that. And one of the reasons is what comes right after that. He says he's with you always to the end of the age. That age refers to the period of time between Christ's ascension and his return. That's the age we live in today. Jesus hasn't come back yet. The 12 aren't here anymore. So this promise of being with his disciples extends to us. It extends to all who follow Jesus till the end of the age. And so it's not illogical to say if the promise applies to us, then the command that comes right before it also applies to us. Because the promise is the encouragement given to those who seek to carry out the command. Jesus says, Go and make disciples of all the nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you, and behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. Jesus isn't talking about two different things. Here's a promise for you 12, or here's a command for you 12, and then here's a promise for everybody else. No, the, the promise is what encourages them to keep doing this, even when it gets hard. He says, I'm going to be with you as you carry out this mission. 
all the way to the end of the age. So evangelism is a command that is given not just to the 12, but to us by Jesus Christ. And when we, when we start here, we can sort of zoom out then and see Jesus is often talking about this priority. It's not just Matthew 28. Back in Matthew 4, he told them, follow me, I will make you fishers of men. That's their job description. And it's ours as well. We're to catch men. In Luke 24, 47, Jesus says that repentance for the forgiveness of sins should be proclaimed in his name to all nations, beginning from Jerusalem. And he says to the disciples, you are witnesses of these things. To all the nations, beginning at Jerusalem, we participate in that. Acts 1.8, he says, you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem, all Judea and Samaria, and to the end of the earth. So Jesus is commanding his disciples, his followers, to take the message of the gospel to the ends of the earth, to share the good news with sinners who need to hear it. So that's a command. And we have an option. We can obey or disobey. That's it. Those are your two options. You can obey this commandment or you can disobey it. And as we seek to obey this commandment, that is an expression of our love for the Lord. John 14, 15, Jesus said, if you love me, you will what? You guys can say it out loud. It's interactive here. Keep my commandments. If you love me, you will keep my commandments, which includes evangelism. So why do we evangelize? We evangelize um, as an expression of our love for the glory of God, but we also evangelize because this obedience expresses our love for God. We obey him because we love him. It's not just John 14. 1 John 5, verse 3. This is the love of God that we keep his commandments, and his commandments are not burdensome. I think many times we feel that evangelism is burdensome. Oh, I really probably should share the gospel with this coworker. I really don't want to, but I know I'm supposed to, and it's burdensome. What's missing in that scenario? What's missing is not an understanding that you're commanded to. You know that. That's why you feel burdensome. What's missing is love for God. When there's genuine love for God, the commandment is not a burden. And our obedience to that commandment is an expression, an overflow of our love for God. 2 Corinthians 5.14, the Apostle Paul, in the middle of this larger context where he's talking about his apostolic ministry, his preaching of the gospel, and some people think he's crazy, and he says, maybe I am. But he says in 2 Corinthians 5.14, the love of Christ controls us. Because we've concluded this, that one has died for all, therefore all have died. And he died for all that those who live might no longer live for themselves, but for him who for their sake died and was raised. Paul says the love of Christ controls this, controls us. People say, what is that? Is that the love that Christ has shown for him? Or is it the love that he has for Christ? And I would just say, yes. I think it's that whole thing together. It's hard to separate that. We love him Because he first loved us. When we consider God's love for us and we respond in love for him, that's when obedience happens. That's like the combustion engine. When you have the spark of God's love for us and you have the fuel of of our love for him in response to that, boom, you have obedience happening. Paul says the love of Christ controls us. So this is very practical. Because I think when we understand this, that evangelism is an expression of our love for God through obedience, that now positions us to start dealing with all of those hesitations we have in our heart, don't we? You might say, well, I'm really not good at talking to people about 
spiritual things? Or what if they reject me? Or what if I don't have answers for their questions or their objections? When we think about it in this, in, in this sense, that we evangelize because obedience expresses love for God, all of a sudden now it frames it very simply, do you love Jesus, yes or no? And if the answer is yes, then you must obey him, which means we must be willing to share the gospel when there's an opportunity. Evangelism expresses love for God through obedience. Third, evangelism not only expresses a love for God's glory, it expresses love for God through obedience. But third, evangelism expresses love for God by overflowing in love for others. Again, we're not saying love God divorced from a love for people. We're saying that a proper love for God, is that's the first commandment, right? Naturally leads to the second commandment, which is to love your neighbor as yourself. And some people start there. Some people start with, well, if we love people, we'll share the gospel with them. But we can't divorce this second commandment from the first commandment. If we love God supremely, that is the thing that has the power to sustain love for other people. If we just try to love other people for their own sake, our love will be up and down. My flesh isn't strong enough to love you all perfectly or to love my unsaved neighbor perfectly. Um, But a proper love for God is going to help me get over the weakness of my flesh. That gives it strength. It brings change because as I love God, I start becoming more like him. And as I become more like him, I start loving the people that he loves. Uh, But also it helps me to love people when, when they are hard to love because it's not about them. It's actually about this is an expression of my love for God. So love for others um, is, is the overflow of our love for God. Love for others can simply be described as a desire to do them good. I'm not talking about warm, fuzzy feelings. I'm talking about an earnest, genuine desire to do real spiritual good to other people. That's love. That's the kind of love that's willing to say hard things they don't want to hear. Because I genuinely desire their highest good. That's why it is loving to tell someone they're on their way to hell. It is. Because you're warning them, because you want to do them good. You want to see them experience reconciliation with God. So love for others is simply a desire to do them good. And the highest good we can possibly do for someone is to introduce them to Jesus Christ, isn't it? I mean, is there something better you can do for someone? Telling them the good news of the gospel telling them that through faith in Christ, their deepest needs can be met, telling them that through faith in Christ, they can be rescued from the wrath of God, that they can be reconciled to God and have a real dynamic relationship with their maker, that they can have true joy and satisfaction, that they can have eternal life and be with Jesus forever. That's loving someone is to tell them that message. So if we love God, it will naturally spill over into love for other people. 1 John 4, 8 says, anyone who does not love does not know God because God is love. So why do we evangelize? Well, it's because our love for God is now overflowing into love for people. A love for the lost is something that was demonstrated by God the Father in sending his son. John three sixteen that God so loved the world, put it in another, in another way, that God loved the world in this way, in this manner that he sent his only son so that whoever believes in him will not perish but have everlasting life. God the Father loves the lost. 
He demonstrated that love for the lost. This is the heart of Jesus in John 13, 1. It says, When Jesus knew that his hour had come to depart out of this world to the Father, having loved his own who were in the world, he loved them to the end. Jesus loved those that had been given to him by the Father. That included lost people who weren't saved yet, I think. He loved his own, and he went to the cross with a desire to secure their highest good, to secure their salvation by shedding his blood. Matthew 23, 37, we see Jesus' love for the lost. He says, O Jerusalem, Jerusalem, the city that kills the prophets and stones those who are sent to it, how often would I have gathered your children together as a hen gathers her brood under her wings, and you were not willing. Jesus has a passion and a love for the lost, and that love is to mark us as well. In 1 John 3.16, it says, By this we know love, that he laid down his life for us. Jesus loves us sacrificially. We're supposed to have that same sacrificial love for others. It's not just the heart of the Father and the heart of the Son. We see this demonstrated in the heart of the apostles as well. Romans chapter 9, verse 1, Paul speaks about his heart, his burden of love for his lost countrymen. The Jews. He says, I'm speaking the truth in Christ. I'm not lying. My conscience bears witness in the Holy Spirit that I have great sorrow and unceasing anguish in my heart. For I could wish that I myself were accursed and cut off from Christ for the sake of my brothers, my kinsmen according to the flesh. Listen, a cold, apathetic heart towards the destiny of lost sinners. That has no reflection in the heart of God or in the heart of Christ or in the example of the apostles. And I say this as someone who would gladly be called a Calvinist, okay? We believe in the sovereignty of God. We believe that he chooses sinners for salvation. But, but if you become cold and callous and, and unconcerned with the fate of lost people and you try to pin it on your understanding of God's sovereignty, you just haven't read your Bible enough. Because the same God who elects sinners to salvation loves those sinners. The same Jesus that laid down his life for the sheep, not for the goats, still weeps over Jerusalem and says, I wish that you would come to me because I would gather you to myself. There needs to be this heart of love for the lost. That's one of the reasons why we evangelize. We we evangelize because we love God. We desire to magnify his glory because we want to honor him and please him through our obedience but also because the love that God has for us, the love that we have for God, it overflows into love for other people. We believe that death is real, that judgment is real, that hell is real. And so we love sinners by sharing the good news with them, seeking to do them the greatest good we could possibly do by sharing the message of salvation. Then fourth, and this will be our final point this morning, fourth reason why we share the gospel A God-centered reason. Evangelism expresses love for God in the pursuit of a God-centered joy. This one's a little more complex. Let me share with you what I mean. Evangelism expresses love for God in the pursuit of a God-centered joy. To put it more simply, we're seeking joy as we share the gospel with other people. This love for God that we're expressing as we magnify his glory, as we seek worshipers, as we try to honor him through our obedience, and as we plead with sinners because we care about them, this love that we're expressing for God in all of this, 
This love is not a loss for us. It's gain. There is great joy in the sharing of the gospel with others. We're reaching for this joy as we seek to see sinners brought to salvation in Jesus. There's joy that comes when you know you're obeying and glorifying God. Think about, you know, chariots of fire. When I run, I feel his pleasure. You know, when you know you're doing what you're made for, you're doing what you're supposed to do, there's joy and satisfaction in that. There's also joy in knowing that God blesses and rewards obedience. Even if people don't hear, even if people don't listen, even if they don't respond, we know that God is pleased by our obedience. We know that he rewards our faithful obedience. We tend to think that the people with the most crowns in heaven are the people that converted the most sinners. But think about it. Isn't God pleased by the proclamation of the gospel despite how people respond? I think there's crowns in heaven for those that share the gospel, even to those who may never end up believing. There's a reward there. And scripture encourages us not to labor for earthly rewards, the things that moth and rust corrupts, where thieves break in and steal. We're supposed to lay up treasure in heaven. We're supposed to invest in things that matter for eternity. And evangelism is just that. And we should not be shy about reaching for that reward and the joy that comes with it. Not because we just want something for ourselves. Again, this is a God-centered joy. When we see a sinner come to, to faith in Christ, we see that God is being glorified, and that brings us joy. We see that, that God is now being worshipped by a new worshiper. That brings us joy. We see that God's purposes in the world, his saving purposes to save this sinner and, and to build his church, see them added to the family of God. We see that God's doing that. His kingdom is advancing. That brings us joy. We know that, that our burden for this person, that they would escape the wrath to come and, and enter into the kingdom of God, we've just done this person the highest good we could possibly do. That brings us joy because we love them. We care about them. And we know that the angels in heaven rejoice. We know that the Father is pleased by this. We rejoice as well. This God-centered joy is to be a motive for us as we share the gospel with, with people. I love what John 4.35 says. Jesus says, Do you not say that there are yet four months, then comes the harvest? Look, I tell you, lift up your eyes and see that the fields are white for harvest. We hear this verse all the time in the context of missions and evangelism, that there's a great need, yes. But what comes right after that? Verse 36 says, Already the one who reaps is receiving wages, and gathering fruit for eternal life, so that sower and reaper may rejoice together. Did you catch that? So that sower and reaper may rejoice together. Guys, there is great joy in the harvest. And it's a God-centered joy, and a joy that we should reach for. God rejoices to save sinners. The angels in heaven rejoice when one sinner repents. We too should rejoice in seeing sinners saved. We think about the story of the prodigal son and how the older brother was annoyed that the father was celebrating you know, the, the fact that the son had returned. And Jesus tells the story to rebuke those who weren't rejoicing over the salvation of sinners. God the father is the perfect model of, of the father and the, and the prodigal son. But also the heart of that father is supposed to be shared by everybody. I mean, that's, that's part of the story. Jesus is saying, all of you legalistic, critical people that are frustrated 
about these tax collectors and prostitutes entering into the kingdom, your heart is supposed to be like the Father in this story I'm telling you. There's supposed to be joy. It's a God-centered joy. So this is, I think, to be a motivation for us. There is joy to be had in the here and now, and there's also an eternal reward in heaven. So we evangelize uh, as, as a, in the pursuit of this God-centered kind of joy. So we evangelize the lost. Again, the singular point this morning, to boil all of this down, we evangelize the lost first and foremost out of love for God. It's love for God. A love that seeks his glory, a love that seeks to obey him, um, a, a love that, that responds to all that he's done for us and, and overflows in love to others, and a love for God that seeks this kind of God-centered joy, that delights in God's glory being magnified and sinners being saved. So this singular motive, the love for God, I believe, is the ultimate why behind our evangelism. And anything less than that, anything less than love for God, anything less will not be sustainable. Put it this way, the reason that many don't share the gospel, the reason why many of us don't share the gospel when we should, it's not because our love for the lost is too small. I mean, that's not the only reason. It's because our love for God is too small. That's really the reason. That explains our lack of evangelism. That explains our hesitancy and our fear. What needs to increase in that moment is love for God, because that will overcome all the obstacles. That will produce a love for other people. That will take away fear and hesitation, and that will give us joy and take away the burden of this duty. If we love God supremely, we will evangelize. We will. This evangelism that's driven by love for God, a desire for his glory, a desire to obey him, that's the kind of evangelism that God desires. That's the kind of evangelism that God uses and that he will bless. So one practical thing you can do if you want to grow in evangelism is pray each day for an increased love for God. Very simple. Lord, help me to love you today with all my heart, soul, mind, and strength. The kind of person who does that will share the gospel. Let's pray. Lord, thank you for loving us. Thank you for your undeserved mercy and grace. Thank you for the example we see in Scripture, the example of Jesus and the apostles as they proclaimed the good news to sinners out of a desire to magnify your glory, to see your fame spread throughout the earth. Lord, I thank you for how they model a sacrificial love for others, how they model joy in the harvest. Pray that you produce that same heart in us, a God-centered heart for evangelism that seeks to love you and glorify you above all else. Amen.